With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Coming up on this week's show, a new pro controller for your Sega Saturn. An incredible new boomer shooter is coming. And we chat to the sound designer of classics like Crisis and Time Splitters, Ross Tregenza. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every Friday with our wonderful mates at Bitmap Books. Now, have you seen The Secret History of Mac Gaming, the brand new expanded edition? Now, believe it or not, the Apple Macintosh actually played a really big part in the evolution of video games. And this brand new expanded edition by award-winning writer Richard Moss showcases the Mac's gaming credentials in meticulous detail. You can check that out on the rest of their retro gaming collection at bitmapbooks.com. And with our lovely friends at PCBWay. Now, you know that PCBWay are massive supporters of the retro community. And apart from sponsoring podcasts and YouTube channels, they also make printed circuit boards. They offer a fully featured custom PCB prototyping service, low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards, and they offer services like 3D printing and injection moulding. So if you're working on a project right now, get an instant quote at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 399, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And it's that time of the week again, our favourite bit just before the weekend, when we get to nerd out about all things retro, talk about classic video games, classic systems, bring you up to speed on all the big happenings in the world of retro from over the last week, and of course, bring you a very special guest in the second half of the show. I'm wondering if, uh, if Ravi's mum is uh, getting her baking skills ready for next week. She's going to make us a cake for the 400th episode, Ravi. Yeah, but she's got to do it for £4 because we're on three ninety nine at the moment. So um, <laughs> I don't think you can get much for £4 there these days, can you? Uh, not even the ingredients for a cake. Not, not even a budget, budget games title unless it's on Steam. But uh, yeah, we are going up to uh, episode 400 and that's next week. And uh, I'm pretty excited about it. You know, me, me and Dan were chatting about this earlier and we're like 400 for, for podcasters is probably much more of a big deal to us than the audience, you know, because it is kind of hitting a milestone uh, really with the podcast. And bearing in mind that most podcasts I, I read somewhere make about six episodes before they give up. Yeah, there's so a the huge amount of uh, new podcasts <laughs> that get released that just kind of disappear into the ether. You know what? I feel kind of like, I guess, like a bit of a geek, a bit embarrassed, like secondhand embarrassment for myself sometimes. You know, when I tell people like, you know, oh, I'm on a podcast. Not that I'm, I don't get embarrassed that I'm on a podcast. I, 
they don't, you know, on the retro or anything like that. But I worry sometimes that people go, all right, yeah, one of those that's, you know, it started in a lockdown and you did two episodes, eh? And I'm always like, yeah, we started like seven years ago, honest. <laughs> We've done Yeah, before podcasts episodes. were cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it's always the highlight of the week for us guys, isn't it? Just, you know, getting together and uh, chatting about all this stuff. And we just love the fact that people listen every week as well and we get these amazing guests. Yeah, so I don't think you- I'd uh, chat to you guys as much as I do if, uh, you know, I wasn't doing this podcast. And it, it actually gives us a good reason <laughs> to actually uh, say it out is, up. Yeah. <laughs> Denied. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's the thing. We've got obviously just, you know, a wonderful community around the podcast as well. You know, I love doing the patrons hangouts. And actually, we've had some lovely voicemails over the last week as well. And uh, there is still time if you'd like to leave one as well. So basically, the idea is if you just want to leave us a little message, you know, maybe a good luck message, anything like that at all. We've had a few uh, quite humorous ones, actually, that I won't play to you guys just yet i'll save it for uh, for episode 400 um but basically we want to get as many listeners as we can on the show uh, for the big 400th celebrations next week so if you'd like to leave a voicemail that we'll play out on the podcast we're going to try and play as many as possible uh, head to our website theretrohour.com you'll see a little link there on the front page and i'll put it in the show notes as well right at the top so you can click through basically a little record button records from your phone and then it sends it to my email. So uh, if you'd like to do that and be part of the 400th celebrations next week, we would love to have you on. But of course, there is uh, still another podcast to do before we get into the 400th episode. And uh, this week, actually, um, this is, I always love it when we do audio episodes as well. Because I mean, all us guys, we've kind of got audio in our DNA. I mean, you know, we, we have talked about maybe do have some plans maybe to do video on the on the main podcast. I thought you were going to say retro our band. That would be awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Joe's would be the only good one. <laughs> <laughs> Joe's obviously been in the band for many years. You know, he's a metal uh, growler, I believe is the, uh, the, the, the appropriate phrase. Um, and also, Ravi, you know, audio engineer for many years. You know, I've done radio for over 20 years. So I think, you know, audio episodes, it's where we come into our own, isn't it? Nerding out about all yeah, things. Yeah, and we could do like a Limp Biscuit style where we're DJs and Joe's the... The kind of rapper. <laughs> that was be Fred Durst. Biscuit style. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is going to be an audio-focused interview today. A um, lot of music talk because our guest this week actually did the soundtrack for a lot of incredible games on huge franchises. I mean, he worked on the, the Crisis series, the Time Splitters games. Really interestingly as well, he was part of the uh, the group you might know from the 80s, Visage, who had a, a big hit with a track called Fade to Grey, I think was their biggest hit. Yeah. He was part of that group for seven years. and. It might be a bit off topic, but you guys have obviously got to get the story about that, of course. And uh, I was quite interested to hear as well, but he worked on one of my favourite kart racing games. I mean, I've always been a big fan of obviously Mario Kart. It's kind of most people's go-to. But I actually think the uh, the Sonic racing games, like Team Sonic Racing, uh, Sonic and All-Star Racing, they're kind of up there, you know. They're not far off the, the Mario Kart quality. So I was quite pleased to hear that he'd worked on those games as well. Yeah, man. So this is uh, Ross Tragenza. Um, who's actually local to us uh, as well, yeah. uh, which is awesome. Um, so yeah, really, really fun chat with Ross. He's got a, uh, he's he's not from Nottingham, but he's actually kind of got like the DNA entwined and hit to him of uh, kind of all the different studios um, that have been in Nottingham over the kind of like the last 20 years. He's had some sort of hand in and pretty much all of their kind of big games in some way or another in terms of audio. And it's a really, really fun chat. Um, you know, quite relatable for me as well because uh, he's really into his synth stuff and kind of industrial stuff as well, which is really fun. But yeah, he's worked on some really big titles, um, you know, Wolfenstein games. Um, he's just done the Texas Chainsaw Massacre uh, game yeah. as well and also Dead Island 2, which I know was kind of like in uh, development hell for a long time. But yeah, he's he's had a, 
in terms some sort of you know different ways in terms of sound and design and stuff like that is is hand in many many pockets uh many well many you know, looking at local studios, you know, he's currently working as the uh, audio director and composer mm. at Sumo Digital as well, and he's yeah. been there for the past six years. But um, in our city, Nottingham, there's been quite a few studios that have produced some really amazing stuff. So, of course, coming out of the kind of golden eye period and rare, you had a you know mm. Free Radical that came out and did Time Splitters. So he was he was working on uh, sound for Time Splitters two as well as Future Perfect. Yeah, uh, then went on to. AVP, uh, Alien vs Predator, which was the kind of 2010 release of that. So, you know, that's got a huge kind of retro legacy. And then suddenly mm. we had a Crytek, which landed in Nottingham as well. So, uh, you know, the whole Crisis series was there. They've also got, uh, you know, Team Sonic Racing, Wolfenstein, Young Blood as well. And then later on, um, it kind of moved on into you know, Dead Islands and uh, new studios came in as well and uh, some modern titles like uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I've seen a lot of people are really enjoying in line. And I think, you know, talking about Crisis as well, because it is funny, you know, it's a bit of a meme these days, isn't it? Whenever I do retro videos on YouTube, you know, guaranteed there'll be a comment in the first day, can it run Crisis? That's always on there. You know, it was definitely a benchmark graphically, but I think the audio of Crisis, I actually think it's quite underrated because, I mean, you know, from memory, there's a lot in there. I mean, you've got stuff like, you know, orchestral elements, you know, there's choir, techno even stuff in there, electric guitars as well. And, you know, I've been kind of looking up a bit of kind of what people think of the the Crisis soundtrack. Some people reckon it's kind of on par with, with Halo. You know, it's quite underrated. Yeah, it was, it was it was a really kind of impactful uh, game when it came out, and uh, mm. it's it's going to be great talking about the sound design. And uh, you know, as you said, a lot of people focus on the graphics with Crisis. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's going to be cool to hear about that studio, but also you know, a lot of these kind of um, brands and uh, series that had their foot in history as well. So you know, you've got Wolfenstein, you have to definitely relate it to the uh, older games there, and uh, yeah, your character Sonic and uh, AVP as well. It's mad to think as well that Crisis will, will be approaching its 20th anniversary in about three years. Yeah, which, uh, yeah that makes me, that <laughs> makes me feel old. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, really interesting guest this week. If you're uh, interested in audio design and what goes into making it for some of your favourite video games, hang around Ross Tregenza. He'll be our special guest in around half an hour from now. But of course, first half of the podcast, we like to kind of bring you up to speed on what's been happening in retro from over the last week. And there has been lots of big stories as well, including Atari, who are continuing their XP collection. Now, this one is actually, obviously, the XP collection is uh, Atari basically releasing games for their classic systems, mainly the 2600. I think they've done a few uh, 7800 games as well. But this one looks like it could be the most interesting title in this series to date, because this is a previously... I'm doing this in uh, air quotes, lost Atari 2600 game. It was one that never came out by uh, a guest that we had on the podcast a few years back, Todd Fry. Yeah, episode uh, 384. So this is uh, Save Mary. And like you say, it's it's a lost one, um, you know, kind of quotation marks. But it was actually, uh, I guess, a, they've, they've self-described it as another victim of the 1983 game crash. So Save Mary, just it never got an official release, you know, on cartridge because of just, you know, because of E.T. <laughs> kind of killed Atari. Yeah. And and actually, quite ironically, um, you know, I, I guess Todd maybe had a hand in that as well with Pac-Man. Obviously, we've done an episode about, about that before, that that quite, you know, <laughs> dreadful version of Pac-Man for the Atari 2600. <laughs> but yeah, um, so it's getting an official release on cartridge uh, for $60. <laughs> for those of you who are excited about this, it is currently sold out. I have had a look. 
So sold out pretty much the day it went on sale. Um, so it's going to be a physical cartridge for the you know the Atari Twenty Six Hundred. But yeah, it, it it looks quite good to be fair. It's a um, it's not a, I wanted to say a tower defense game, but it's obviously not a tower defense game. You you pretty much you build a tower, don't you? And Mary, uh, your damsel in distress, you know, because that was the thing at the time in the eighties. She's kind of on a tower uh, in water that's slowly rising, and you have to drop blocks uh, to build the tower further. But obviously, you can't drop the blocks on Mary. So you only have like a small, you know, area for you to kind of drop the blocks and you have to kind of time it. Um, kind of reminded me of a few kind of like mobile phone games, uh, you know, like kind of like tower block building games with like timing and rhythm and stuff like that. But yeah, it looks pretty fun, pretty colourful for the Atari 2600. Yeah, nothing like uh, getting with the bad books with the missus by dropping a block on her head. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, <laughs> and I'm really loving the artwork and everything, you know, proper, you know, that kind of like old school 80s style. Well, um, they've just re-released the kind of um, 2600. So, you know, yeah. having having well, physical carts for it as well um, yeah. is going to be good. And I think they'll probably be maybe looking into more lost games. And, uh, you know, people with Atari knowledge will probably already know about these titles, I can imagine. Yeah, I, I bet a lot of people, you know, kind of, you know, who are like diehard Atari fans, we kind of missed it, as we've said before on the show with the 2600 and stuff like that. More more down to the age of the system in our ages and stuff like that, but I imagine this. I wouldn't be surprised if this is kind of like one of those games that's kind of gone down in the community of you know everybody knew about it. It's probably you know ROMs of it out there and stuff like that. But it's nice to see you know it getting an actual physical cartridge and it's coming from Atari. I know it's a it's a different version of Atari these days, but at least it is Atari, the company that it's coming from, and it's gonna be for you know as Ravi says, the re-released Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Yeah, which I think, you know, it, it kind of makes more sense to me now why they're doing that 2600 yeah. plus, because obviously they're continuing this XP collection. You know, it looks like they're not slowing down with their 2600 releases on their physical, which I think is awesome as well. There's always something nice as well about seeing games that never were yeah. kind of making it to full release, isn't it? There's something quite, you know, it's a nice completion yeah. thing, I think, you know, that 40 years later it comes they out. They definitely seem to be doing sort of like, a, obviously you get the compilation cart that's going to come with the plus. But then it's like they're doing kind of like the biggest titles, like there was Outlaw that we spoke about the other week. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of like, okay, I feel, I feel like you said it the other week, Dan, they know what they're doing now. They're not doing these hotels mm. and casinos and all that kind of silly stuff. They're like, right, let's just actually go to the fans that we still have, release the Atari 2600 Plus, release some games that never came out and that have got a bit of a legacy, and then also release the classics, you know, the ones that the people actually loved and had yeah. and you know and just don't go obscure i think i think that's their aim at the moment just to keep and them it, afloat it, it and stuff seems to have a two-player mode in there as well oh uh, does it is, yeah yeah nice oh that's nice that's cool yeah and i think when, when you see you know unreleased titles from you know people that are very well known i mean obviously todd fry we did you know the whole episode about sword quest as well and, and obviously <laughs> the pac-man game too but i think it's quite nice to see you know just uh you know titles that maybe you didn't have a chance to play before from you know industry legends so um that is like joe said available for pre-order although uh looks like you might have missed the boat but hopefully they'll do some more on that so i'll, I'll link it up in our show notes when to check that out at the retrohour.com now, something else that you might want to pre-order, and uh, I reckon this one is probably right up your street, Joe, a brand new Sega Saturn Pro controller that actually, because I know the Sega Saturn Pro controller is often regarded by many people as uh, kind of the pinnacle of 2D controllers, mm. but this one brings it a bit more into the third dimension, and also, what I think is really cool, it makes it wireless as well. Yeah, man. So, uh, 
th- this does look wicked. So this is from a retro bit. So they have done a Sega Saturn controller before, a wireless one, which I actually have. Um, and, it, and it's beautiful. It does work really well. But the big selling point of this one uh, that's going to be coming out is it's got the analog sticks on there, which, mm. you know, famously the Sega Saturn had the uh, the 3D stick for Nights into Dreams, which just had the one analog stick on it. And it was the big circular I think you've got one, haven't you, Dan? The big circular, chunky, chunky controller. It kind of felt like, you know, that time when obviously they're still figuring out yeah. kind of control mechanisms for 3D. It's not retroactively very comfortable to play on these days. Yeah, exactly. So, but, you know, as you say, the the, the smaller, you know, original Japanese controller, which was actually the second model controller that we got in power territories and American territories. Uh, so the smaller one has gone on to be you know, people say it's one of the best controllers ever, especially for 2D fighters and stuff like that. So they're going to be re-releasing this uh, with additional uh, analog sticks. Um, and it also says here it's going to have some additional trigger buttons as well, L and R buttons on there as well. I'm trying to think. I think Sega Saturn just had an L, just an L and an R, but I think this one's going to have L1, L2, R1, R2. And the reason... Well, like, like triggers as yeah. well as a shoulder button. Yeah, yeah. And, and the reason for this is, although it's going to come with a Sega Saturn dongle, is also going to come with a USB dongle and it says it will be playable on the website. It doesn't actually state like Switch or PS5 or anything like that. It just says it will work with other USB supported consoles and PCs. That's pretty cool because, um, you know, having a Sega Saturn dongle that's actually wireless yeah. is uh, really nice. And this also opens up the whole market of, um, you know, using this on, on your PC or Mac. And I remember when I got a Sega Saturn, um, I, I like the system, but I like the controller more than anything else. Yeah, I yeah. thought it was absolutely beautiful. It was like the kind of Mega Drive controller, but um, uh, you know, six button one, but taken to the kind of next level. And yeah. uh, mm. this looks, you know, a next level on top of that with uh, a decent battery power as well, and uh, just the shape of it, it. It looks really ergonomic and. It's got that old Sega vibe, you know. Yeah. With the Dreamcast controllers, they kind of lost that a bit. Um, I felt. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I agree with you there, Ravi, because obviously the Master System controller is, you know, the original black two-button controller. But you definitely could kind of see that the Sega Mega Drive controller was a continuation of that controller, and then the mm. Sega Saturn controller was a continuation of the Mega Drive, and then the Dreamcast. I guess if you look at the Japanese Sega Saturn controller which was the white one with the colourful buttons, you can see a resemblance in the colour, but not the shape or the ergonomics of it or anything uh, like that. It was really the 3D one, wasn't it? The Sega Saturn 3D controller taken to the next level, I guess, yeah. you know, the Dreamcast one. Yeah, it was. I think a lot of people regarded like the Mega Drive controller and you know the kind of six button as one of the ultimate ones. Like, yeah. I remember... We used to rewire them to use them on the Amiga, and uh, you know the Competition Pro was one of the big, yeah. the big controllers, which was kind of based on this as well. Um, yeah. But uh, you know this, this just looks fantastic. This is something that I'd actually get, and and it seems decent as well. It's um, fifty US dollars at the moment. I can't see it in a yeah. UK currency, but uh, that's not bad at all, is it? Yeah, you're talking about forty pounds, aren't you? Yeah, yeah and, 40, and you, know, you know, if it is going to be, I mean, it, like I say, it just says USB compatible if that is going to work on Xbox and PlayStation, et cetera, their official controllers are more than that anyway, you know? Yeah. So, so you can't really grumble at the price of that. And it, it does come in the two variants. You can get it in the black or you can get it in the white. 
with the green, yellow, and blue buttons, the original Japanese style. And there's, there's plenty of buttons on there as well. I can imagine yeah, yeah. that the analogs would be pushing as well. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It doesn't actually say, but I imagine they will be. And I've got to give them props as well for uh, including not only a USB char- USB-C charge cable with it, but also having a, uh, a charger a battery built into it too, unlike uh, Microsoft can't seem to figure that out. Um, <laughs> but you can just recharge these without having to look around for double A's, which I think is quite good. It's got a built-in uh, lithium-ion battery, a rechargeable 500 milliamps, it says. So, um, yeah, I think this is really, really good. Because, I mean, obviously, Sega Saturn accessories and the system itself, I mean, they generally the prices of those seem to be going up quite mm. a bit every time I see them. So I think not only for fans of, uh, you know, the original system and maybe you want a Wi-Fi solution, but also if you uh, just want some new controllers without, you know, paying over the odds for, you know, what a 30-year-old controller is now. So uh, they're available for a pre-order right now and uh, shipping's meant to be very soon, actually, around uh, start of December, they're hoping. So uh, might be a good little one for your Christmas stocking this year. So I'll link that up in our show notes if you want to check it out. Now, there does seem to be a trend at the moment of, uh, <laughs> and I love this nickname, we actually, uh, we've had a few comments about calling calling them this name in our, in our YouTube channel over the last couple of months. Boomer shooters. Now, we didn't come up with this. This is, you know, Germany. What the kids call first-person shooters of our generation, I guess you could say. I'm, I'm not a fan of it. I mean, you got me to say yeah. it at the start in the intro. And <laughs> I think you taught me it, Joe. I didn't know it until you Oh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I did, but it's like, yeah, boomer shooters. Like, I kind of see it as like that kind of Doom era, Quake, you know, uh, that's what they call those kind of games. You know, they're or they're our dad's generation, as in like yeah. weird. 90s FPS As in games, weird really. dads now, you know, it's what the yeah. cool Okay, boomer. Okay, boomer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, so this is a uh, Elastic Exterminator, which I want to call it a Doom clone, but it's more more probably in the vein Duke. of Duke Nukem, yeah, yeah. Duke Nukem 3D, uh, Quake, uh, Hexen kind of style. Come, coming to us by a developer and publisher, Ironworks Games, Um I tried to kind of research these guys a little bit and there wasn't a lot about them online. Mm. Um, it looks like it was potentially a solo developer who used to work for another company, but it doesn't say who, but he worked on some big games by the looks of things, some Spyro games and stuff like that. So I'm going to do a little bit, a okay. little bit more research into that. Watch the space, see if we can uh, arrange anything. But yeah, this looks really fun. So, so we've not got any sort of release date uh, announced at the moment, but looking from the trailer, yeah, just if you're a fan of Duke Nukem 3D, etc. Yeah, just going around shooting it, mutants and stuff like that. Well, it right looks like it, it looks to me pretty much you're kind of in the Duke world, but um, yeah, there's obviously bugs are there instead of pigs, and yeah, uh, you know you're you're fighting them and you're you're the exterminate that you're gonna yeah. take them out, <laughs> and um, there's a whole thing about like rent to kill and um, having having the right kind of uh, you know there's adverts everywhere for kind of insecticide and stuff like mm. that. But it's got a lot of um, elements that were in. in I, I wouldn't say just Duke Nukem, but the whole build engine as a whole. Like uh, there's stuff like stack sectors. They've got uh, destroyable uh, buildings that are falling yeah. down. I remember there was a whole part in Duke where you could do kind of destruction of buildings. But um, also it looks like there's a lot of melee combat as well, which... Uh, one one good thing about you know kicking in Duke Nukem that was always really satisfying and there uh, seems to be this kind of massive punch that you can do in it. Um, yeah. uh, a good selection of weapons as well. Um, yeah, it, it looks like it's a, a lot more developed actually, and um, the lighting effects are really impressive as well. And obviously, this is all running on a new engine. But what I like with it as well is that it comes with a level editor. 
and um, a, a moddable engine. So basically, you can create your own maps and then uh, you could probably play on them. And it says you can build new campaigns as well. So um, it looks like they're going to try and build this to become a big community as well. And uh, yeah, it, it also reminds me of Postal as well. There's a a, a similar kind of feel to it. It's um, definitely got that. You know, when you just said that, yeah, it's definitely got a look of Postal to it, hasn't it? And uh, I think you're 100% right with that community feel there. I've got, I wouldn't be surprised if it's a, you can upload your levels and stuff, you know, like on like Mario uh, Maker and other people will be able to play the campaigns and stuff that you've created. Yeah. The one thing I'm surprised about is that they haven't named the kind of main character, you know, like Duke had an identity. You oh, know. she has got a name. Oh, it's she Kira has. Parker. Oh, Kira Parker's a name. Oh, there's yeah. a full kind of story behind it then. That's that's good because that's what you need with a title like this. You know, you need to. Yeah, well, she, she's apparently an, an, out, an out of luck exterminator, barely making ends meet. And then she's working a night shift one night and an alien invasion starts to tear apart the city. And uh, it really gets on her nerves when they uh, they destroy her van, apparently. And, so and it with c- nothing to lose. contains tobacco and alcohol use as well, which is, uh, you know, always needed in a boomer shooter. Yeah. And, and these games just seem to be, like, really back in fashion again lately, don't yeah. they? Ion, Ion Fury and all those kind of games, yeah. One thing I do love about it is um, you can pick up landmines as a weapon, but you throw them as frisbees. So, so you, like, frisbee in them at the enemies, and obviously they explode on contact. I thought that looked really fun, and it's very... Very reminiscent of, you know, Duke Nukem, etc., which, you know, it does just say the best games of the 90s. So, yeah, hit the nail on the head there. Very loud and brash as well, mm-hmm. isn't it? And it looks like there's even a, a little section in there where you can play some retro arcade games as well, which, you know, we see that in quite a lot of uh, games. But, I mean, you know, we've, we've kind of talked before about this kind of uh, retro FPS revival. I mean, you, you've sent me a link earlier for uh, a new demo that's on the Amiga at the moment using that Dread Engine. Yes. Um, a game called Grind. I mean, that, that looks incredible. So it just feels like, you know, that they're really pushing the boundary with what you can do with these kind of classic FPS games. Because I don't know about you, if I play like original FPS games from the 90s, I mean, obviously stuff like Doom and Quake was incredibly well designed. But I was playing uh, Genetic Species for the Amiga over the weekend again, which uh, it was very well regarded when it came out, but there is definitely parts of them where you think, oh yeah, they hadn't quite figured out how to do that in games at this stage. Yeah, that that was an impressive one. But I tell you, I go back to them and I feel very sick. When I play Doom, like, I just get this kind of Doom sickness or motion sickness, but um, playing something a bit revamped or on on a modern system, I can actually cope with. Maybe if I'd exposed myself to Doom for months, then, you know, I might get back used to it again and kind of lose that uh, motion sickness. I think you do. It, I've kind of read it's like, you know, finding your retro FPS legs almost. Yeah, yeah, like um, you see legs. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, because I was the same. I mean, I think I started playing a Gloom on the Amiga again, you know, Gloom Deluxe for the first time in ages, about three or four years ago. And I was the same. I felt incredibly ill and dizzy after I played it for a bit, but I persevered with it, and now I'm actually okay playing FPS games on the Amiga using a CRT. So that, that could be part of it as well. But I think it's just, yeah, kind of retraining your eyes, I guess, isn't it? Because we're a bit spoiled these days with our uh, our 4K displays. Yeah. yeah, running at 120 hertz. So uh, if you want to check out this game, um, there is a demo of it available now. Apparently it was meant to be out in September, but it looks like it, um, it missed its release date. So hopefully it won't be too far away. It's called The Elastic Exterminator. And I'll put that in our show notes as well. Now, I've talked before on the podcast about the fact that I've kind of gotten back into collecting CDs again recently. Might be because my missus actually runs a, a charity shop, cancer research shop. And uh, <laughs> often when I go in and like, you know, she'll be like cashing up at the end of the day 
and I'll kind of browse through the CDs and they're like, oh, I used to have that one, or, oh, that looks quite good and I'll buy it. Um, so I've kind of got a bit of a collection of CDs again now, and I kind of got all the CDs I had left in my parents' attic out of there a few years ago when they moved house. And actually today I've been listening to um, a CD called The Magical Sound of the Panpipes. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Alan <Everybody>. Partridge. <laughs> <laughs> this is a, it's a four CD set, including the uh, panpipe renditions of classics like... Um, Wind of Change. Is this this and, week's sponsor uh, by any chance? <laughs> no, no. But it's, um, they're a bit late. It was probably 1992, so uh, <laughs> it's about a bit there. Um, but yeah, I mean, the way I listen to CDs at the moment is via a, uh, a Pioneer CDJ player that I've got in my room here. But it turns out that, you know, people are kind of looking for high quality CD players and finding that they're not all that readily available these days. So they're resorting to actually modding something that was very well regarded as a, a decent audio CD player back in the day, the early models of the PlayStation 1. This, so this confuses me. So, like, it doesn't confuse me that, like, they use a PlayStation. It's like, yeah, great, like, PlayStation was... What is a CD? What is a CD? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> but, but what... And, and maybe people are going to scream at me now and stuff like that, but surely they'd have to have a good TV? Like... Uh-huh. Well, well, is that where we're going with it? <laughs> yeah, this is where you're going wrong <laughs> yeah. because there was the very early models of the, the PlayStation 1, which um, I've got the, the model numbers here, the SCPH-1001. Yeah, that um, Or the SCPH-1002. Basically, the, they had um, audio outputs on the back of them. Yes. Yeah. So that means you can just plug it directly into, you know, a hi-fi, for example. Oh. What you will need, though, I think you're right, in re- you will probably need a TV to control the interface because there's no buttons on there unless you memorise kind of <laughs> where it is on the screen with the controller. Um, but you can obviously play it via your hi-fi or your, your decent speakers. I, I used to do that a lot, actually, you know, just yeah. have the PlayStation running. And then I remember they kept changing the... Um, interfaces as well with the different versions so uh you know you'd have a i remember the really early cd player on there i probably had one of these uh early units actually and sold it for like 10 pounds to some guy yeah i mean they go for quite a bit of cash now because i think not only have they got those audio outputs on there as well but apparently i mean it's a bit of a you know some people say it's a bit of an urban myth that they had like really high quality um dax you know digital audio conversions on converters on the original uh, models of the Sony PlayStation, which actually they reckon is uh, on par with, you know, CD players of the day that would have cost you thousands of pounds. I, you know, I have absolutely no nostalgia for CDs. It's really bad, but I guess it was probably because I was pirating CDs and, you know, putting MP3s onto onto CDs when there's, uh, you know, the data kind of increase on like your kind of car player. I, I only ever saw them as like a functional thing. I wasn't that precious mm. about them. Uh, saw them a bit as throwaway where vinyl I was like if you scratch my vinyl you know it's interesting though to see this and uh, I kind of like the idea that they're they're being repurposed because I can imagine you know obviously some are some are getting quite expensive um, like you said but I'm sure you might be able to find one you know out in the wild that's one of these early versions yeah, some that doesn't know quite kind of how much it's worth, like a car well, sale or in, something. Interesting, you should say that. I, uh, you know, as you guys know, I dirty reseller these days in terms of uh, selling at, at uh, cons and stuff like that at markets. And um, I actually bought a big bundle off eBay of untested consoles. There was a PlayStation in it, and it was the uh, SA the SCPH one zero zero one model. Um, right, and I knew it straight away because it had all the you know audio outputs on the back. Unfortunately, out of like the six consoles that came with it, it was the one that didn't work. It didn't read the discs. 
but it, I took it to uh, the last gaming market I did and just stuck it in a big box of spares and repairs. And and before it even opened, somebody else came and bought it off me for a tenner, offered me a tenner <sighs> for it. Because of I'd have had that, Joe. I can fix PlayStation lasers. Oh, can you? Oh, sorry, mate. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> now, but yeah, one of the other stores came and bought it straight away. So I thought he's probably going to fix that. And <laughs> yeah, sell it for a thousand quid now, probably. And, yeah. and strangely, there seems to be a little scene as well. Um, I know you were talking about how to play it. Um, there's the PS2 remote control, and some people seem to be modifying that online to work with the uh, PS1 as well. So you can have that remote and skip tracks and yeah, okay. do all that kind yeah, yeah. of stuff. Well, the reason we're talking about this, I mean, it's been well known that the uh, you know that model of the PlayStation One is uh, very good for audio CDs. But actually, it's an article that What Hi-Fi, that sounds very Alan Partridge, What Hi-Fi magazine, who are now a uh, you know website like most magazines have turned into. But basically, they they've done a feature on um, people modding PlayStation One consoles to use as CD players, including uh, some people have put kind of translucent doors, you know, instead of the original door on the top, so you can see the disc spinning round, which when I saw that, I thought, I kind of do miss that. You know, the fact that kind of modern disc players, you can't actually see if the disc is spinning. Yeah, in, like, I, you know, I love those stand-up Sony um, kind of CD players as well. I think they look really nice. And uh, one guy here is actually, <laughs> I, this is all for show, but basically he's actually um, made a, a black PlayStation 1 and he's kind of put like fake valves and stuff on it as well. <laughs> and uh, even added like an integrated amplifier into it. So, I mean, it does seem like people are kind of doing mods on these and turning them into things that look really cool in their home hi-fi setups. I'm I'm just imagining Dan having his like nieces and nephews around and being like, come into my room and play on the PlayStation. We're going to listen to Pan Pipes. (laughs) (laughs) See you later, Uncle Dan. (laughs) Good way to get rid of them next time, actually, brother. (laughs) I like it. Yeah, for me, it was always, I mean, before I had a a proper CD player in my bedroom as a kid, that was generally the way that I did listen to CDs. It was via, originally it was my Amiga A570 CD-ROM drive. And then I did actually buy an Amiga CD32 just to play audio CDs, CDs on basically because I think when I bought mine in like 1995, I've talked about this before, I got two CD32s for about 25 quid. So they're actually cheaper than buying, you know, a dedicated audio CD player. So in terms of using consoles as audio CD players, it's something we've done for a long time, but it's quite interesting that kind of the uh, the non-gaming market, you know, the, the hi-fi audio files are modding original PlayStations to be high-end CD players now due to uh, scarcity of them, you know, on the market. So that is quite cool. I wonder as well, because, you know, obviously we've had the the cassette revival and, yeah, vinyl. Do you think CDs, like in terms of audio CDs, will also follow yeah, I, I think there's a lot of love for them, but um, not in my kind of area. Um, I, yeah, I, yeah I, th- I think there will be, you know. There, there, there must be nostalgia. Like I was watching um, some old TV the other day and – they were holding up CDs and you know, it was the first release of CDs where they had the absolutely tall packages and, uh, you know, I can imagine people collecting those. Um, yeah, yeah. I'm sure there is a market already for those. Um, but yeah, I think it's just the fact that having something physical is quite nice, isn't it? You know, not something that lives on a server that, you know, might vanish one day. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm all for the CD revival. I know Ravi's still kind of campaigning for the mini disc revival. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that remains to be seen. So if you want to check out this article on what hi-fi, I will link that in our show notes as well. Now, we did mention that next week is going to be our big 400th episode. Can we just say as well a massive thank you? So I know we talk about this a lot, but um, really, this podcast would not be going into the 400s without the support of our incredible patrons community. Um, you know, not only for the fact that we've mentioned before, we love hanging out with them as well, but just for the support, you know, obviously the financial aspect of it, 
is massively important. It's actually essential to the survival of this podcast. Yeah, it helps out, you know, and we're we're kind of doing this every single week and it does yeah. require a lot of work, you know, uh, talking to people, researching, uh, arranging it all, kind of getting the story together, editing as well, which Dan is a, a complete wizard doing, and then all the other stuff like the website and, uh, you know, paying for the recording service as well. Um, we use uh, Zencaster, which is a, a really... Uh, good recording service but uh you know patrons you're basically keeping the show alive and you're giving us a reason to kind of uh come out and do it as well which is just absolutely yeah. fantastic and the fact that we are coming into you know the 400s and obviously that does mean you know it's time of year we appreciate that you know there's christmas and all that's coming up as well so uh we appreciate not everybody can but if you can um, you know throw it can be just, you know, think of it as a tip jar, essentially, you know, a couple of quid in there, a couple of dollars, a couple of euros, just to help us continue and pay for our server costs and stuff like that as well. It all really helps. And of course, you'll be part of the most prestigious community in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour crew, where uh, we actually do a hangout every month. You've probably heard about us talking about these as well. Um, a few people in our Discord, because we have a private Discord server for our patrons. A few people in there have actually been talking about, you know, is it going to be the 400th party then at the next hangout? And we're like, hell yeah. We're going to continue the celebrations till the end of the month. We need to do so a that physical one at some point, don't we? Yes, 100%. We've talked about this before. Because we did meet a few of our patrons at your uh, Kickstarter event, didn't we, in, uh, in Nottingham? Yeah, yeah. We, in, we need to do a proper gaming night or something, though. That would be really good. Absolutely. So, I mean, there is a hangout that we do at the end of every month. Um, next one is coming up. Uh, it'll be uh, the final Sunday of this month. My calendar's not working. 29. There you go. <laughs> and also we do a bonus podcast just for our gold members and above called The Retro Hour After Hours, of which we're about to record episode number 38 of that show now, which is insane because if you join us on Patreon, you unlock all that as well. So uh, plenty of reasons to support this podcast. We'd really appreciate that. So if you'd like to join our patrons community and see us into the 400s and beyond, all the details are at theretrohour.com. So if you'd like to leave us a voicemail for the big 400th episode, you'll find that link on the front page of our website right now, theretrohour.com, um, or in your show notes as well. We'll uh, play as many of those out on the podcast next week, and uh, we'll see you for the celebrations next Friday. And next, we're going to get some stories about audio design for classics like Time Splitters, Crisis as well, with this week's special guest, Ross Trugenza. He's coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour, and we're here with our very special guest, Ross Tregenza. How you doing, Ross? Hey, I'm doing very well, thank you. Good stuff. So, uh, the first question we always ask all of our guests is, what is your first or earliest gaming memory? So, uh, my parents got me a, a Commodore 64 when I was nine years old. Um, mm. They thought it was going to be a fad, so <laughs> which obviously it's turned out not to be, but... Um, I think they bought it secondhand from a, a student somewhere in Penzance where I lived as a child. And uh, it came with uh, a load of games, which I guess in retrospect must have been pirated. I don't know. They were just on cassettes, like yeah. weird, weird little indie games. I guess indie games and stuff. And then that was that was my main present for my ninth birthday. Uh, and so the, for that birthday, the rest of my family bought me a few Commodore games that were available at the time. Mm. Uh, my sister bought me a game called Cauldron, which was a funny little game where you flew around as a witch. I don't think it's really stood the test of time. But the big one that became really uh, like a formative thing for music and for <laughs> my whole life was The Last Ninja, which I, mm. I, I loved the music of just obsessively. Um, the loading music and the starting music of that game, like I just, I would just load it and listen to that while 
healthy kids were outdoors playing sports. And things. <laughs> I was inside just listening to the music from The Last Ninja. And that, that really was, I don't know, something happened when I heard that music that changed me forever. Was that kind of like, was The Last Ninja kind of like the first time you kind of recognised music then? Was that the first time you kind of started getting interested into it? Or were you, were you, did you have a bit of a musical background before that at all? Or? Yeah, I think so. For, for, for video game music, definitely. That and um, Outrun, which um, mm. were on the Commodore, came bundled with a cassette of the cassette um, of the key songs from the soundtrack, which, yeah, I loved then and I love now. So those two games, that really sort of ignited something in me. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm not, my, my family is not from a musical background, but, but, mm. but um, uh, my parents both loved music and would, like I'd play guitar with my dad and stuff like that. So there was, there was a, a love of music, but yeah, not musicians per mm. se, but yeah, th- those Outrun and The Last Ninja, definitely something happened when I heard those two soundtracks. Was there like something special about the uh, sound coming from the SID chip? Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, the, just that, that particular tone from the SID chip just back then and, and still now, like hearing like Last Ninja or, or any, you know, beautifully written song, the SID chip, like by Ben Douglas and people like that. Um, th- there's just something to it. It's just, um, it's really, I guess it's evocative because it was my childhood, but I still love the sound. I mean, I've, I've used, you know, SID emulators in music throughout my entire career just because I love the way it sounds. I, w- I was going to say, like, there's a lot of kind of modern titles that um, y- you may have added some Sid Chip references in there as well. And uh, yeah, definitely. maybe it's actually becoming a bit more relevant in gaming again. Yeah, it's, I mean, um, it's it's easy enough to do now. Like uh, 10 years ago, there was really, you know, like one or two options for emulating Sid Chips. And there was like about one hardware device that could do it. But now it's, it's very easy to throw that in. I think even... As recently as like uh, I did a game called Hot Shot Racing, which is like a sort of a throwback uh, to to the early racing games that Outrun and and Super Hang On things like that. And so I had quite a lot of SID chip emulation in there, just because I just love that sound. It just makes me happy to hear a SID chip. <laughs> so, what kind of music software did you start developing on? Then, did you uh, have any experience with trackers later on? Yeah, that that was my. Um, my first real experience of actually writing music in in any way uh, that was when I was in my early teens. I guess I can't remember. I guess it must have been on my first Mac, which was like a Mac LC, which was uh, really early nineties. Had a forty megabyte hard drive, so it wasn't super huge or anything. But um, I had a really basic like mod tracker program, like four channels, and I could extract the uh, audio files from games that I had on my Mac that I don't. I guess not downloaded, there was no internet, but I'd paid for, I guess. So I would extract from like SimCity or whatever, I would extract, I guess not even WAV files, I don't even remember the format, it's a very, very long time ago. But I'd extract them and then I could um, drag and drop them into this four-channel tracker and then just, that that gave me the first, like the knowledge of, of like what a four-beat of, of a drum is and like where snares go and what it means to do like a basic melody and stuff like that. Very, very basic, but it was kind of nice to learn that stuff on my own. And, and it was like a sort of a progressive formative learning cycle that, that was really cool. I'd like all those songs. I'm sure if I still had them, which I, I don't, I mean, they're going to be absolutely terrible, but you know, <laughs> you, you need to start yeah, somewhere. You need to experiment. I was uh, wondering, did you uh, do any sampling at all or, or play with any samples at any point? I got into sampling a little bit later. 
my first band was um, like a comedy goth band in about 1996. We started, I think, called Sneaky Bat Machine. That nice. um, <laughs> uh, weirdly it did. It was very basic uh, and stuff, but it, it did quite well. And there's still fans of it now, <laughs> which which is really sweet. Like I still talk to people and they still listen to it every now and then. Now it's lovely. But um, the first iterations of that, um, like when we played live, I had a, it's a Akai S20, little tiny like sampler. You'd just put like a, a floppy disk in with dinky little samples and it would load them up and you'd play them. And we'd run that through a chaos pad, which is just like an early sort of uh, multi-effects. The trigger, wasn't it? Yeah, you just you play it with yeah. your fingers and on like an XY grid and it would just do like uh, delay and uh, uh, chorus and stuff like that. Uh, so we like um, a guy in my band would, would we had samples from like horror films like Return of the Living Dead and stuff like that. Oh, and we, yes. we we would trigger the samples <laughs> and then we'd just like do like sort of almost like a like a dub style delay on them and things like that while while we were playing. So that's awesome. And and um, the first tracks that I did were in Cubase, but there was no audio in Cubase back then. It was purely MIDI. So any like samples, like if I was doing a remix for a friend's band, I would have to break uh, break the the vocals into little uh, sample clips and play them on this little tiny Akai unit and then just trigger that over MIDI and now those get fed, fed into the, uh, the the mix, which would happen externally. Like, like we'd have to burn it all onto it live onto a CDR. <laughs> That's amazing. You sold me at Return to Living, Return of Living Dead there. That's like one of <laughs> yeah, my favourite films of all time. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what? That's brilliant. So, you know, at this point, so, you know, you're playing in your band and stuff like that and messing around with remixes and, you know, music at home and stuff like that did you kind of ever see it as like becoming a career did you ever stop and think like this is my future or was it all just kind of fun at this time i never knew at that point that i would end up doing music for video games and mm. I'd, um it didn't it seemed so distant and and so far away from what i was doing i didn't even ever consider it at all mm. uh I, I i was trying to do the best i could do with my band um yeah I had a dream that, uh, you know, I, I could make enough money to live off my band, which it was such a, um, I mean, that band and the band I went on to do, uh, they're niche underground bands, like realistically, very, very few people make a living on uh, sort of you know, subculture mm. bands, stuff like that. If, if you can make some money, that's great, but yeah. it's it's never, <laughs> I mean, I was never trying to get rich and like, yeah. I've never done music for money that that's just stupid, but um but yeah, uh, realistically, that that band was so underground, they was never going to make me any serious money. Uh, and that whole time, uh, like I was just were like working in clothes shops in Bristol where I lived, and um, working part time, just doing what I could to to try and promote my band and get further with it. And but that that was before the really the um, the 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 point in my my timeline is when I met uh, Graham Norgate, who did um, Golden Eye and, and mm. Time Splitters and stuff. And uh, and we became friends, and just talking to him and learning about his career was the point which I realised I love video games, and uh, I I make music. I could make music for video games. <laughs> just for some reason, those two paths in my life had never in my brain that that connection had never happened. So that 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 day was the epiphany. <laughs> Were you a big N sixty four fan at the time? You know. Yes, I mean uh, I didn't have one, but uh, um, I I was back then. I was just a uh, skinny poor goth living in a house full of other skinny poor goths <laughs> and uh, one of us had had an n64 so played golden eye but um, mm. i was more a, um, a time splitters fan because I, I had yeah. a 
had a PS2, and uh, so it was it was my PS2 we were playing. Yeah. We've, we even built like cardboard screen dividers for our television, so oh, we could that is old school. Uh, yeah, to avoid <laughs> cheating. And so um, by the time I met Graham, we, we, we we'd been playing Time Splitters every day obsessively mm. for a very long time. So mm, mm. I was I was I was very excited. That's really interesting. So how how did you how did you meet Graham? How did the where's the, the kind of the timeline and the story take you there? Because that's that's fascinating. Because it's you know you sat there playing Time Splitters with yeah. a cardboard divider, and then before you know it you're helping out with time splitters too like what's connect the dots for me there because that sounds amazing so after my comedy goth band sneaky bat machine i formed uh, uh, another band called goteki which i still do mm. now yeah. 20 years later it's um which is uh, the first band was lovely but it was very sort of narrow scoped because it was just comedy goth songs basically so yeah. goteki was my my more open-ended like industrial electro band sort of inspired by nine inch nails and depeche mode and stuff like mm. that and uh, Graham was uh, a fan of my band. He 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 liked my band, and I was playing at a festival, like a, like a all day festival with a load of bands playing. And I was uh, I was backstage after we played, and someone said, "There's um, a friend of mine here who's, who really likes your band. He wanted to come say hi. If that's all right." So of course it is. Yeah. So so I said, uh, "Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I do the music for Goteki. What do you do?" He said, uh, "Write music for video games like Time Splitters." And I went absolutely crazy. <laughs> <laughs> Jaw like, in the floor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he was he was doing a tiny bit of nerding and and happy to meet me, and I and I massively out nerded him, and and uh, yeah, just yeah, I, I really fanboyed on that. But um, we we became friends, and um, eventually they, they started work on. Well, they, they they I think at that point they were actually already in the process of making Time Splitters too, and. Mm. Um, but uh, he he loved my music, and he thought it would be a nice fit somehow um, for the game. So he said, would I like to try my hand at doing just a remix for the, the end credits of the game, uh, which I did. And, uh, you know, obviously I, I realized that was a big deal. I mean, it was very exciting opportunity for me. So I worked very hard at making it as good as possible. And um, the, the fans liked it. Like the, the, he said, like the QA testers at the time playing the game were listening to it all the time. And it was a big success, which led on to uh, Time Spiders 3, Time Spiders Future Perfect. I, I wrote... Camera, but it's, it's either six or eight tracks for that, and so our um, our sort of relationship started getting more professional. And then over time, I was doing like some sound design for him and stuff like that. And then eventually, Free Radical expanded in Nottingham, and he had the opportunity to get me to come up and interview to work for him, and uh, I did, and uh, got that job, and that was my my entry into the video games industry. You're uh, you're never going to believe this, but you know when you mentioned the uh, the remix of the credits there. Yeah, on Time Splitters Two, uh, you know how they had the level editor editor on Time Splitters Two. Yep. I would always, uh, you remember the virus mode where yeah. you know the, the green smoke. I would always make a long corridor on the editor <laughs> mode, and then just put loads of guns and turrets and stuff at the end, and I would play virus <laughs> mode on that on my own, and I would always put the music as the end credits uh, <laughs> oh, remix because <laughs> it was the best song in there, and I'm not just saying that. Oh, thank so, you. Uh, that's incredible. Uh, I was wondering, like. You know, that point in video games when uh, the PS2 was coming out, you yeah. getting full kind of bands and uh, soundtracks, you know, on GTA, and uh, you had a lot of actual, actual music going on. What was the kind of setup then that you were using? Were you doing stuff remotely or were you coming in and what equipment did you use? At that point in my career, my, my equipment was incredibly basic and I, w- I was just recording from home. At that point, I've been you know, doing music for, I guess, about six, seven years. I was... I was still fairly fresh, but I had enough skill to to make it sound okay enough. And um, 
I'd have to check with Graham, but uh, I I wouldn't be surprised if when I sent it to him, he did like a little bit of mastering and stuff to clean it up because I was yeah I was just working from my my little flat in Bristol with with my my basic home equipment, so I did what I could, but I he probably cleaned it up in the studio a little bit. But it wasn't the case of being like going in anywhere specifically and recording it like like the vocals of that track I just did in my bedroom in Bristol, <laughs> and uh, I guess there weren't any. Uh limitations on size as well and um you know uh, fidelity that it was going to come out in um because it had lots of storage capacity well i mean um if you listen to it now you can hear the um the quality of it is is not brilliant it's it's um it's quite sort of artifacty and crunchy sounding just because well i mean stuff was back then and, and my equipment was was fairly basic the song itself sounds fine like like listening to it now i think it's it stands up as a fun little uh, remix, but if I was to remake it now, it would obviously sound much nicer. It's a, it's all little, it was a little basic. So you must have been pretty young at the time. Was that kind of like nerve wracking for you? You know, your first gig, all of a sudden, your you know first video game gig. You know, you you're writing for Time Splitters. How how did that feel? I think it was. I mean, because I'd um, I'd spent my entire twenties uh, in in my band in my bands that I was doing and stuff, trying to to make it doing all that kind of stuff and I was just kind of in this sort of loop of doing music never really making any money from it but being very happy being creative and stuff I don't think I kind of realized when I did that first song what it meant to get that break in the industry I, I was incredibly proud mm. and and I was telling everybody that that would listen about about what I would done what what I'd done and you know the fact I was going to be in time spaces but um I don't think I realized it was going to be you know the gateway to to what would be uh, yeah, a defining path in my life that that mm. it became that 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 I've become a video game composer. So I was I was I was delighted really just for that one track, but um, it never occurred to me there would be anything beyond that really. So when you got the call to kind of do Time Splitters free, you said you you know you did six or eight tracks there. Were they obviously Time Splitters? All the Time Splitters games have a very heavy kind of industrial techno soundtrack yeah. were they the tracks you worked on or did you get to work on some of the other you know like the scottish levels and stuff like that and the oh no i mean at that point because uh uh my, my background was obviously sort of industrial electro music and stuff like that mm. and graham quite rightly got me to do stuff that i was good at which was that kind of stuff the um all the sort of uh genre music that takes a bit of you know knowledge of each of those sub areas of music that was all graham just because Back then, I, I would have done a terrible job trying to do like the the, the Scottish music or the, mm. or the the the, um, the the cowboy music or the cathedral music stuff like that. Whereas Graham had a really he's he's got a much better, more well rounded background in music, and mm. he was able to to dive into all these subgenres. I'm better now, obviously. It's it's yeah. 20, twenty years later. I can do that kind of stuff, but. Back then, thank God I didn't try to do, do that kind of stuff. It would have been shocking. Standing in your flat with your new rocks on playing the bagpipes. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I, I was wearing new rocks as well. So yeah, good call. Fantastic. <laughs> how, how much do you think, like, you know, it being a first person shooter and that kind of uh, goth dark wave uh, industrial EBM kind of sound uh, played into it? That's all I knew, really, musically. I'd um, like now. As I've grown older, my, my my musical tastes have got much much wider, and, and yeah, I've got appreciation of everything. But I was I was I was a goth, and I all I did was goth things and go to goth clubs, talk to goth people. So 
my musical knowledge was very narrow back then. So I was lucky that that's what it called for, for, for the game, because um, if it hadn't been that sort of dark industrial electro kind of vibe, then I couldn't have done a good job. But I mean, um, and uh, uh, Graham's a bit of a goth as well. So he is, yeah. I <laughs> uh, love that. Yeah. So, uh, what happened next? Because I've uh, I've got here that you briefly worked at Rebellion on the 2009 Alien versus Predator uh, game. What's the story there? Yep, that's right. So um, we had a, a pretty sad sequence of events with Free Radical that just mm. um, it was one of those things. It was just um, one thing, one bad thing after another that that couldn't have been predicted happened. Ended up that the company needed to to pretty much fold and and get rid of everything but a skeleton staff uh which included me uh mm. and it was very sad like i mean uh, i i was heartbroken um so uh yeah i'd moved i'd moved, i'd been i'd lived in the southwest my entire life and i moved out to nottingham for, the, for this job and um uh yeah a year later through no one's fault it was just a series of events uh the company had to downsize down to a skeleton crew so I, uh, there's a lot of like um, sound designer and composer like uh, email groups and things like that. So I was putting it out there that, that I, I needed work. And uh, Martin Oliver, who was the audio director at Rebellion at the time, replied to me saying they were looking to expand a little bit. So I went down to Oxford. Uh, we had a nice interview. It was um, it was a little bit sad because uh, I'd, I'd been working on the the new Star Wars game with uh, Free Radical. Yeah, and and uh, that obviously folded when when the company mm. went into administration, and then uh, Rebellion picked it up. But um, then they they stopped making it the day I joined. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> so literally, my my first morning, the the news was that we weren't making it there either. <laughs> so I had about six months down there. Uh, I worked with um, uh, some amazing people that I'm still friends with now. So uh, Jordan Pedder, who's gone on to work for Sony, and Mick Brewer, who's now the audio director there. Uh, very talented guys. And I learned quite a lot from them while I was down there. But I was I was just in Oxford. I had no connection to Oxford. I was just kind of unhappy just because I was mm. sort of out of place. So um, I was trying to get back up to, to Nottingham. And then uh, uh, Crytek bought the, the you know, the, the what was left of Free Radical as a whole. And then uh, we sort of, I went back up for that and then we sort of expanded back out from there. So it um, wasn't a bad time because uh, I was working on, uh, I mean, that, that Alien vs. Predator game was awesome and um, it was yeah. lovely to contribute to it. And those guys were great. Like I made friends that I'm still friends with now. So certainly not a bad period. Just um, in terms of my career, I, I felt very sort of just just out of place and I needed to get back to either mm. Bristol or Nottingham. So yeah, yeah. so it was great when, when Crytek did, did buy us up. So when uh, Crytek landed, um, you know, Crisis was an absolutely huge title. It uh, came out and really stunned everyone. Um, I know you worked on the second title as well. And uh, what was it kind of like having, you know, Hans Zimmer on there as well and uh, c- trying to fit in with that sound? Um, they, I mean, they were amazing games to work on. So uh, we, we, by the time Crytek bought us, um, obviously Crisis 1 was out and was... It was almost like a, a benchmark in quality of games at that point in, in gaming history. Like people would, would say, like, yeah, is is my PC good enough to run it? And just mm. the the graphics and the experience of that game was 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 made it kind of iconic and sort of a legendary game. So um working on Crisis 2 was phenomenal. Um I had a very, very uh, minimal about 
amounts of bar music work on it. I, I just did a couple tiny bits on, on some DLC. So I wasn't involved very much in the soundtrack uh, other than implementing it. But um, it was amazing that we had um, yeah, Hans Zimmer contributing to the soundtrack. And but just everything about that game was, was just exciting because uh, there were a lot of eyes on it. And I think it was the first time uh, like in studio that you know, I was aware that a game I was working on had like the eyes of the world on it and that you know, the sound, because I, I was just purely you know, 95% about sound design on that one. So, but thinking about like doing the, the sound of the guns and the environment and that kind of stuff, thinking how much people are going to be paying attention to it. That's the first time I'd really experienced that aspect of the games industry. So it was exciting and scary and, and you know, but uh, made me start to become more of a perfectionist about my sound design, make sure that the quality was good enough that when it was released, uh, I was proud of the work, which is yeah, it's important as a sound designer. Do you, do you think working on something so kind of huge uh, kind of made you really get into it and, and take it a bit more seriously and want to get actively involved in a crisis free in a in a much bigger role? I think so. Yeah, I think it's uh, it was kind of sobering to um, to work for uh, you know a, a bigger company where because with Free Radical, yeah, I knew the directors and I knew everyone in the company. And yeah, not that we weren't doing our best work because we were, and everyone was working very hard. But it was a very friendly, um, sort of a more localized environment for the creativity. Whereas with working for Crytek, it was um, people we didn't know over in in Frankfurt and stuff like that were judging the quality of the material. And I think um, it made me sort of step up my professionalism a little bit, which I think is was very healthy. So I think it's good. Uh, I think it needed to happen. As you get into the games industry and the, the titles getting bigger, then it's um, you need to change your, your your thinking a little bit. It's, it's not a hobby, and while it's fun to do it, it it is a job, and it's yeah, it's it's a job you need to take seriously and work mm. hard at it. So, so I think um, I think that's probably yeah, I think that's a good call. I think that was the point where I I switched my 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 thinking to become a professional, really, as opposed to someone just enjoying doing a fun thing. Mm, mm. That's really interesting. And like you say, uh, you know, you did become the senior sound designer for Crisis Free. So I'm guessing you were more involved in, were you more involved in the kind of the music side of things with that? Or was it still kind of just implementing the sound? No, I, I, I still didn't do a lot of music. Uh, I mm. said, did a, a little bits here and there. Um, I became very involved in um, uh, dialogue systems and um, I, yeah. I, I, I wrote um, a lot of the dialogue for Crisis 3. And, oh, wow. and 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 directed it in in the um like the VO sessions and stuff, which is still something. Um, whenever I get a chance to do it, uh, I'm very passionate mm. about. If, if I get a chance to write dialogue for games, then uh, like uh, um, uh, Homefront, I did after I, I, I wrote about twenty, thirty thousand lines of dialogue for that. Oh wow! And and directed it all, which I, I love doing. It's, it's yeah, it's not my main thing, but if the opportunity happens, then uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll take it. I was going to say, how does how does that kind of happen? You know, you go from uh, that's really interesting because I, I I hadn't found that about you. You know, kind of looking online and stuff like that. But how do you kind of go from you know you, you doing the doing the sound, the music, and stuff like that, and then all of a sudden you're you're writing and directing, you know, the voice work and stuff like that? Just sounds really interesting to me. It's 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 more of like a, an old school thing that you wouldn't really see so much these days. That mm. um, it used to be the sound guys would there was kind of a mentality. There would always be like two or three sound guys in the corner of the studio 
Uh, they they would sort of handle anything that involves audio. They, they'd implement the the VO. They, they'd write the music. They'd do the sound design. Obviously, that was when there was two or three people doing it. Now uh, it's quite common for sound team to be 30 people, something like that. And yeah. you get dialogue specialists and you get script writers. But even... Yeah, back when we were doing Crisis 2, there was for the for the multiplayer, we had uh, Robbie Eskin, a very talented writer. He's now working uh, for like a lot of like Netflix things and Hollywood and stuff like that. Uh, he was writing the core stuff, but there was always that peripheral stuff needed writing, even if it was like placeholder. So mm. I would I would just I would just write the content because it's quicker than you know mm. waiting for someone else to do it. And then um, over time, doing placeholder sort of morphed into just doing the content. And um, I've always enjoyed writing, so it's just like a job that no one, no one else was doing that needed doing. So I just did it, and uh, people kind of got used to it. <laughs> so um, Homefront, that was uh, when they changed to Dambuster Studios as well, and uh, it's a really interesting game because um, it, it really it's like Red Dawn, basically. Yeah. <laughs> um, how many times did you watch the movie, and uh, did you get a lot of reference from there? Yeah, it was. Um, it was a difficult game because uh, we, we kind of went through a few iterations of what the story would be because it's very easy for it to, to come off sort of jingoistic or, or you know, sort of slightly sort of fascistic towards the Americans and, a, and slightly racist towards the, the, the Koreans in the game. So it was quite a, a fine line of, of like, you know, watching different films and how they dealt with it. And uh, we went through a lot of iterations of what the story was going to be. But I think um, where it ended up was an interesting story. It was it was a funny game because it it kind of it took so so many years to make and um, didn't really quite land as well as we'd hoped. Uh, but I'm still yeah. I I thought it was um, it was a great game when it came out, but um, the impact in the industry it didn't seem to kind of uh, uh, go that well. No, it, it didn't really it didn't quite land as well as we'd liked, and uh, it was disappointing because I yeah I was all over it. I mean I directed mocap sessions and wrote dialogue, directed VO sessions, wrote music, did sound design. It's just, I was I had my hand in a lot of it. But um, there, there, yeah, I learned a lot during, because it was about six years, I think, we worked on that game. And I, I learned a lot during that time. And um, uh, that sort of went into, like, the the stuff we learned in terms of, di- like, dynamic music and dynamic dialogue systems, things like that that went into future games that I made like Texas Chainsaw and stuff like that. So even though it didn't set the world on fire when it came out, um, it was, it was a very, I think important learning experience for me and a lot of other people that have gone on. To, and also cause I mean, that studio then went on to make uh, dead Island two, which has been a huge success. Mm. And a, a lot of that is based on the learnings from, uh, from home front. So, and that was that in exactly the same building as Crytek as well. Yep. I, yep. Same they, building. Yeah. They pretty much changed names. Yep. Then, different sign, yeah. same building. <laughs> I, I've got visions. I said earlier on, um, I was talking to the guys and, uh, I said, I can imagine Ross just like sitting in his, like an office at this building and just every couple of years, just changing the sign above the door of like what company it is. <laughs> yeah, much, you yeah. know, I lived, I lived above that building, and I was, oh, uh, I was in the apartments above the building. Oh, in the actually, Canal Street. I, yeah, yeah, and I was like um, hoping that I could just meet someone in the car park and be like, "Yeah, give us a beta code." <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. I've got to ask Ross uh, on Homefront the time splitters Easter egg. That's in there. The entire yeah. game of Time Splitters Two. Were you aware of that? No, because so I left um, 
I left the game about uh, just under a year before it came out, and that was a right. last minute thing. I yeah. think, if I remember rightly, that was a pet project of um, there was an incredibly talented uh, coder called Charlie, and um, that was just something he was working on was was converting that over uh, as a fun thing. And they're like, "Well, you've done it. You might as well put it in the game." So, yeah. But yeah, that was that was a lovely, well well received Easter egg. <laughs> yeah, it took five years for people to find it, but yeah, that's brilliant. That is. Um, so I've got to ask. So Team Sonic Racing, um, yeah, great franchise. Uh, our co-host Dan has actually gone on record to say he prefers the Team Sonic Racing games to the Mario Kart games. Oh, um, nice. <laughs> yeah, which which is crazy. Um, so you were a lead audio designer uh, on the game. Um, just what's the story there, and also how involved was Sega? in the IP. So, um, I, I left Dan Buster and went up to work for, um, uh, cloud Imperium in Manchester on mm. star citizen, which is their, their crazy giant space game, uh, mm. for a couple of years, a uh, very nice couple of years, but I, I needed like a sort of a life change, uh, mm. after a couple of years that I just felt like I was, I needed something new. Um, so, uh, Carl Hilton, who was one of the directors of free radical became the director of sumo Nottingham who uh, picked up the Team Sonic Racing job uh, to do. But they had no audio team. And uh, obviously he, he knew me. And so he contacted me and said, would you be interested in moving back to Nottingham to work on a Sonic game? And I thought, this is absolutely perfect. Yes, I will. Thank you very much. Which I did. It was lovely. Uh, when we started, there was about, I think it was about 35 to 40 of us working on the game. It was tiny. Mm. Um, and it was just me doing all the audio. I hadn't met the, the the composer from Sega at the time, which is Jun Sinoe, which uh, I would do uh, over time. So the first sort of year of working on it was just this lovely, quiet time of just this tiny little development team just working on it every day, making it better and better. It was it was very, very pleasant. Um, and then it, it got busier and bigger, uh, but still a pleasure to work on. And then eventually I met uh, Jun, the composer from Sega, uh, who started like... Um, give me the tracks he wanted to put into the game and we talked about how they'd be implemented and stuff and um that that was lovely just because he he's like a legend of of, mm. of like the the sega franchise and um it like had all this amazing crazy music to um to to work with it was like uh some of it went up to 300 bpm which is just crazy. yeah and also uh sega representatives started coming over as the game got like, further into production so they they would we had like embodied Sega people just to make sure that we weren't yeah messing up uh, franchise important things. Mm. But there there was a point where I thought I would try and modernize the sound of of um, Sonic picking up the rings, and yeah. I really I really tried to sell it to them, and uh, they went away and had to think about it and came back and said no. <laughs> <laughs> and you know they they're completely right. Uh, yeah. Like like it, I think it was just, it's just arrogance really to to try and change something so important to the franchise. So yeah. so I like that they they made me stick with the original sound. So that's that, uh, that, that was the right decision against my ego at the time. That's brilliant. <laughs> One of my next questions was going to be how you know how involved was Sega and how strict were they kind of like on on the licensing of you know these these legendary IPs and sound effects and and tracks and stuff like that but i i guess there's the answer really yeah no they're um they're very tight on it and so they mm. should be i mean yeah it's i think it's very important with uh franchises like that the the long running loved franchises you you have to be tight on it because yeah. you start loosening up then everyone starts putting their own take on it and like i was trying to do just people's mm. egos get involved and they're there it starts diluting what made it so special in the first mm. place so mm. yeah 
I, I, I completely agree with their decision to be yeah. really tight on it. How do you kind of, you know, go about capturing the essence of these classic franchises though and, you know, making it making sure it's true to the game but also, you know, not changing it too much? And were you a big Sega fan growing up and stuff? Were you kind of familiar with the IPs? I've, I mean, I liked Sonic. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a game nerd. I always have been, so I'm mm. very aware of it. Um, the Sega platforms weren't my, my main go-tos ever mm. growing up, but, you know, I loved Sonic as much as any video game nerd loves Sonic. So... I did a lot of research and, and I watched you know, endless footage of, of all the games and stuff and made sure I knew what all the sounds meant and what they were used for. Because they provided mm. me with like the palette of the original sounds. And uh, the ones that weren't so as important as like the uh, the collecting rings, uh, I modernized a little bit, added some new uh, stuff just to make them, because a lot of them sounded very old now because they were. But the, the wider thing of, of just maintaining that Sega feel to it was difficult at first because also because I'd, I'd just been making very dark first person shooters for most of my career like it was all, all stabby stabby violent machine gun games so this is my first sort of family friendly game i've ever made so it was a bit of a a rethink on on the way i designed sound and stuff but you get into it very quickly and um making those sort of blue sky you know oceans and sandy beaches kind of sounds after a while, you get into the vibe of it, and uh, it's 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 very pleasant, and um, you get a feel for it for sure. Well, kind of returning back to that shooty, stabby, stabby sound. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, you worked on uh, Wolfenstein: Young Blood, which yeah. um, you know is an absolutely legendary FPS series. Uh, you know, kind of foundational game. Um, what was it like working in that kind of retro future? futuristic aesthetic and the kind of dark tone of the game as well did it did it suit your music style yeah i mean that was um that was a very important game for me because that was the that was sort of the first um composing job in the games industry i had that wasn't related to previous contacts or anything it was it was a case of um like an email group i mean with a load of composers somebody said does anybody have any experience in uh writing remixes in an 80s style and so i i replied to the guy it turned out to be nick rayner who was at the time the audio director for machine games who was working on wolfenstein and um i said yeah i've done countless remixes in my life and i was also in the 80s pop band visage for about seven years so so i've got like a, a big history of 80s pop Fade to Grey, one of my favourite tunes. Yeah, so yeah, I've done Fade to Grey on stage and stuff. It was lovely. (laughs) So he was, um, he said, okay, I think we've got a winner. And yeah, it turned out to be Wolfenstein Youngblood. So what I had to do was uh, take the the vocals from the previous game, which was set in the 60s, scrap all the music completely, and then redesign uh, new songs from scratch, just putting those vocals in. But with different 80s pop styles, like each one re- referencing a different like artist. So so one was like in the style of New Order, one was in the style of Gary Newman, and one was in the style of Visage, which was already the plan, ironically, which was amazing. So um, I would, I was, that was my first real full freelance music gig. So I was kind of uh, uh, a step away from production for the first time. So I didn't get to um, see any of the tracks in, in situ for a long time. Uh, what I did, obviously, it was it was lovely, but I was uh, I was really just, which is more what you do as a freelance composer, just working with you with the audio director, with them giving you whatever they can provide you in terms of videos or uh, references or, or feedback and stuff like that. And and he was, um, I mean, he was he was a 
uh, it was still is a great audio director. So uh, he was giving me very good feedback and giving me lots of information about the context and where it's going to be placed and how it should sound and stuff. I think uh, a few people might kill us if we don't ask. Uh, we're going off a bit topic. But if we don't ask the story about Visage, um, <laughs> it was actually uh, on our questions here in about five questions time because I saw it on your website. Um, but I wasn't sure how involved uh, you were, you know, kind of thing. But seven years uh, performing with the band, that must be a dream come true. What's the story there? It was a very, very surreal sequence of events. So um, uh, Steve Strange from the original band uh, in about two, I can't remember the years. I'm gonna, I was going to take a guess, but I don't remember the years involved in this. But at some point anyway, in the early 2000s, uh, he decided to resurrect Visage because they hadn't performed for a long time. And uh, uh, my housemate at the time, uh, Rosie Harris, was was in uh, a band. Uh, mostly, but we were in Bristol, but they were based in London. They had a French singer and a keyboard player, and she was playing bass. Uh, so a London promoter that that Steve Strange knew, that also knew my housemate's band, said, "I already know pretty much the whole band you need." So they became uh, the new Visage band, but they needed a guitarist. Uh, so they knew me. Uh, I played guitar. So. I also joined. So just one day I just drove up to London with my friend and there was Steve Strange in a house and we started learning to play Fade to Grey and stuff. And we, we spent the next um, seven years. Although, uh, he was uh, his, his health wasn't great at that point. Um, it was sort of failing him. So uh, we couldn't do tours or anything. We would just do spot gigs here and there. But but we did some amazing big performances for you know, 20,000 people and things like that, which were just very, very exciting experiences and lovely memories. It yeah. was uh, very, very, yeah, it's been so long now that it just feels like a strange dream. Fever dream. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Did that actually happen? Yeah. <laughs> That's brilliant. That's crazy. Um, and also, speaking of amazing and uh, kind of like, I guess, standout moments in your life, you were nominated for a BAFTA award for your work yeah. on a Death Loop. Um, you know, what was your role and contribution there then with the project? Um, yeah, that that was that was an amazing day. I mean, uh, I never never would have dreamed that that was a, a possibility. I'm not going to pretend I didn't cry and wander around <laughs> <laughs> screaming, going crazy when that happened. It was an amazing moment. So, uh, Deathloop came about because of uh, a long sequence of events coming from Wolfenstein. So, um, for Wolfenstein, there was like a little sub game that was, I think it was like a VR experience called uh, Wolfenstein Cyberpilot that, that was just kind of fell by the wayside, really. But um, I contributed some music for that, but that wasn't uh, Machine Games who did it. It was uh, Arcane Leon who were doing, um, oh my God, I forgot what the franchise is called. What's it called? Dishonored. Thank you, my girlfriend just said. <laughs> Dishonored. <laughs> so they were doing Dishonored games. But they just did this as like a little sideline. But um, the uh, audio director, Michelle Tremolia, was was happy with my work on that. And um, so when they're doing Deathloop, we had um, Tom Salter, who's a, a very established composer, doing the core uh, dynamic music in the game. But then they wanted loads and loads of like um, uh, diegetic music, you call it, where it's like in-world music mm-hmm. that's just emitting from like radios and cars and things like that to sort of fill out the the, the world and the fiction and... and um, yeah, make it feel more rich and more uh, of its time and stuff. So um, me and uh, another composer called Eric Talibur wrote uh, loads and loads and loads of uh, songs in this sort of 60s, 70s, experimental, industrial, electro kind of style. Like what mine were more of that style. He, he did like a more of a Rat Pack crooner and acoustic kind of stuff. But 
like together between our, our two bits of music is sort of combined into this work kind of they work together quite nicely so um while you've got the main music playing like that's reflecting your action that's written by tom salter as you're wandering around the world there's loads of little people dancing stuff like that and those songs are uh by me and eric talibur so it's lovely because um and it was uh, the same situation with cyberpunk the the they're sort of even though I'm not part of the 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 main score, my work was sort of omnipresent and unavoidable in the game. So it's lovely to be part of that, of that experience. Awesome. I was going to say, uh, what was it kind of like working uh, with Cyberpunk then? Because it was such a a huge hype project. A lot, I guess, a lot like a Crisis as well. You know, with a, the kind of uh, expectation yeah. of the title coming out. That's a good point. Actually, it's it's yeah, it's kind of like the, uh, the 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 crisis of its time. And you know, obviously, we know now that uh, it was met with a lot of frustration and anger and stuff when it came out because of all the bugs and stuff. It, I'm, I'm so delighted to see that the the 2.0 patch and the new DLC have been finally met with you know the love that it always should have been met with. Um, it sucks because you know I knew the people on the development team to know that. They had to, they had to yeah, get the game out with all those bugs still present and and how angry everybody was about it. So, but um, yeah, we didn't know that at the time. Obviously, I I just because I was working on Deathloop and Cyberpunk at the same time, and I just knew it was going to be a huge game with Keanu Reeves in it, which which just seemed crazy. But it was very fun, very very hard work. The the Cyberpunk stuff because it it was a uh, hundred and thirty jingles uh, for like in world radio and TVs oh, wow. and billboards and stuff. And uh, my the the two main bits of my brief from uh, Martin, the the music director, were number one, don't make it sound like Blade Runner because the last thing they wanted was to look like they're ripping off Blade Runner, which is great because that would that would have been very easy and lazy. Mm. And number two, make every one of those 130 tracks sound like it was by a different composer. So I I, I had to dig very 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 deep into my <laughs> my my music tools and make each each uh track some strange combination of instruments that, that i'd never thought of before and uh, <laughs> it's 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 starting to become a bit of a stretch by the end that's crazy yeah i could <laughs> imagine uh i i mentioned before we recorded i i've i've been in you know bands and stuff like that but you know racking my brain to try and contribute not even write to four or five tracks for an ep <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's hard enough let alone 130 jingles so that's uh, yeah. that's a huge testament um, yeah, it was it was so content filled that game. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. I can imagine that's crazy. Um, <laughs> and I guess our, our final question uh, before we kind of wrap up is: You were the project audio director for the recent Texas Chainsaw Massacre game, and I read that you're a huge seventies and eighties horror fan. What was that experience and journey like? And also, you know, kind of a, as a project audio director, what was that like? It's it's, it's been fantastic from from beginning to to right now. I mean, obviously still sort of uh, fixing little things and making it better for everyone. But um, I mean, the, the day I heard that we were doing it, I just did a huge whoop of happiness in the studio mm. when, when our, our studio director, Gary Edwards, announced it. And um, my, my feeling about it has never, never changed. It's, it's obviously, it's been hard work. It always is hard work getting a game out, but um, it's been phenomenal. And to be working on not only... Uh, yeah, a franchise that I already cared about as as a horror fan, but to to be able to be audio director and do ninety five percent of the sound design, hundred percent of the music, and be in charge of yeah thinking about how it sounds and what the systems are in every way was was just lovely. I mean, 
when, when I love something, I become a bit of a control freak. And, and I was in love with this franchise so much that mm. it was unbelievable to me that, that I was given such uh, freedom. I mean, the, the publisher Gun were, were great. And um, the, the CEO, Wes Keltner, was he's, he's very interested and, and involved in the music and, and, and the audio. I wanted to make sure it was you know, on point. And like like everything in the game, like they they dealt with it incredibly carefully, making sure every detail and every nuance was correct for the franchise. So it's kind of a case of proving to them over the first few months that that I was going to be careful and I was going to be respectful of the franchise and you know do everything as well as I can. And as time went on, they they trusted me more and more to to just do it well. And, and there were times when um, they weren't happy, like the the chainsaw just took endless iterations to get it right and there were times where i thought oh, i think this is fine surely it's fine and i would send it off to them like nope do it again and i would start again from scratch and so the, the one we ended up with is is perfect and I'm, I'm very happy with it and i'm so so happy that they didn't let me get away with what was basically half-assing it when i was just sick of hearing chainsaw sounds <laughs> all day long because i'd convinced myself it was all right and it wasn't so yeah. I knew when I got it right, and it, it wasn't any of those previous versions. What do you do in that situation? Like, I'm not a sound guy, but like, you know, I, I know it's a digital world now, so I can't imagine you you sat there with hundreds of different chainsaws pulling on them. Go, go into machine. Uh, yeah, and I'm, yeah. All the chainsaws. I'm assuming you had, you know, just hundreds of like, you know, sound clips and stuff, and then you just kind of go from there, do you? Or so the starting point was, which was awesome. Uh, they they rebuilt the uh, the chainsaw, which is a mixture of a Poland two four five and a Poland three hundred six A from uh, the seventies, which oh wow, uh, the one from the film. That is so cool. the, yeah. they they got that rebuilt using some like local engineers and stuff like that who, who knew it from from the seventies, and so they got it running. And then they hired Watson Wu, who's one of the the world's best uh, sound recorders to spend like three days recording every aspect of it, like revving and the the, the, the the moving it around and stuff like that. And then just sent me this massive library of uh, every aspect of what it sounds like. So that, that was the daunting beginning of it, where from there I have to take these individual things because, um, yeah, making a living, breathing chainsaw sound system in a game is very different from, you know, just some recordings. It's, mm. it's like the difference of like, a picture of a car and a car, basically. Mm. So the, my first decision to make on the subject was that uh, I, I wanted to make sure that it was um, engaging and fun to, to rev the chainsaw. So like a lot of times people, because chainsaws are a, a complicated thing to do sound design for because they're so noisy and messy. So in previous games, when there's been a chainsaw, quite often they'll just uh, do like a bait sound and it'll just rum, 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 and it'll rev and then it's done. Mm. Uh, so I'd, I wanted to make sure it wasn't that, that it was something much more uh, complex and live. So that if you like feather it and rev it with when you're playing the game, then, then it's responding to that. So um, I had to treat it like a, a car engine, basically. So I had to like break up loads of little loops of audio and then like layer them. And um, just it, it was basically just iteration over two years of trying again and again to get those, those different loops of, of chainsaw sounds actually sounded like the real chainsaw it was it was uh incredibly hard work i think it was i think i came in about 150 hours of listening to chainsaws in the end to to get it sounding right but um it's it sounds great in the game now so I'm, I'm happy that's amazing 
That's awesome. Shout out to Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. If anybody's a uh, listen, you know, <laughs> hasn't seen that. <laughs> Fantastic, Ross. Well, um, our final question, and I'm not too sure if you can tell us or not, is um, what are you up to at the moment and what are you working on at the moment? The priority right now for Texas Chainsaw is just uh, we're doing loads of like these little regular patches just to fix things mm. um, and including audio, like just minor stuff that um, like we're, we're broadly really, really happy with the sound of it. So mm. it's just a case of just tiny little things that that, that we want to fix to make sure the experience is as enjoyable as possible. So, uh, and then we just recently released like a whole different chainsaw, which w- was like, that was another whole chainsaw to do. So that's like another 150 hours of work, <laughs> but it sounds really cool. It sounds like a tractor from hell. I love it. I'm yeah. so happy with it. So, uh, yeah, just working on more content for that. I've done some music for another game that I'm not allowed to talk about mm. yet. So I'm going to have to be mysterious about that one. Uh, I don't have a release date for it either, but there's, it's, it's quite a big game coming out in the future. Other than that, uh, just music stuff generally. I have I have a fairly constant stream of like um, stuff on my YouTube channel or on like occasional solo bits of music or with with my band Koteki we talked about earlier. So uh, if you just just if anyone wants to Google my name, they'll find all the various things. It's hard to shut me up. I'm always doing something. <laughs> Awesome. Well, that was absolutely incredible. Uh, I love that. And thank you so much for coming on. (laughs) No problem at all. 